Last Sunday in the second hour after worship, I attended the adult Sunday school class here at Middlebury. The curriculum is from the Guide to Biblical Studies, and the scripture was a story about Jehoshaphat from 2 Chronicles. In the biblical story, the armies of the Moabites and the Ammonites are arrayed against King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. And in chapter 20, it says, They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets. The class had a quite lively discussion, and in the course of the discussion, one of the questions that came up was the question of who are the prophets today, and which of those prophets can be trusted? In other words, when it comes to those who claim prophetic vision and authority, how do we know who tells the truth? Who is to be believed? I didn't comment at that point in the discussion, but I smiled to myself as I thought, well, that's exactly what next Sunday's scripture and sermon will invite us to think about. What prophets can be trusted? Who are the truth tellers? Who rightly speaks with authority? Who can we believe? It feels like these are relevant questions for our times. Yes, they are questions that go all the way back to Jesus' day and even further back to the time of Moses. That's the voice in that Old Testament Testament scripture that we had read for us this morning and goes back to Jehoshaphat for that matter. But they're also relevant questions for us. What prophets can be trusted? Who are the truth tellers? Who rightly speaks with authority? Who can we believe? And I think the relevance of those questions is especially obvious today because we're living in a political and social climate that does not really value or honor truth-telling. A political and social climate that twists the nature of authority away from moral authority toward an arrogant, bullying kind of authority. Instead of truth-telling and trustworthiness, what is valued by our culture in this day and age is power and self-justification and most discouraging and maybe even depressing, the persistent dehumanization or demonization of those on, quote, the other side. These are the most prevalent cultural values right now, it seems. And these are the values that push us apart politically and socially. These are the values that are used to justify the constant escalation and even glorification of violence, especially violence toward those who are most defenseless, those who are most innocent. But truth and trust in this day and age truth and trust are on the ropes. Seems to me that in this context, the term fake news is an interesting thing to consider. It's a term that 
hasn't been around all that long, but it is so often thrown about that it feels like it's been in our collective popular vocabulary forever. Of course, you know what it means, that some news is to be trusted, is true, and some isn't. And people who use the term in a serious way mean to say that news that is real is the news that I choose to believe. And the news that is fake news is the news that I don't believe, or even more so, that doesn't serve my purposes. So if one person's truth is another person's fake news, then it's clear, isn't it, that there are no more Walter Cronkites among us. Cronkite, the elders among us will remember, was the television news journalist in the 60s and 70s who was once named in an opinion poll as the most trusted man in America. Those days are gone. If opinions can be presented as facts and facts can be dismissed as fake, then it isn't long before the self-serving lies stack up, repeated so often and with such determination and certainty that they are increasingly and devastatingly believed. So yes, there are persons who present themselves as prophets in our day and age, but I have to wonder whether many of those persons are better identified as propagandists than prophets. And then throw into the mix the all-pervasive power of the internet, including the influence of social media, the rapid rise of artificial intelligence, the news and information echo chambers, along with the conspiracy theories that are a dime a dozen, and here we are. Here we are. Back to our questions then. What prophets can be trusted? Who are the truth tellers? Who rightly speaks with authority? Who can we believe? In this morning's scripture from Deuteronomy, Moses is clear to say that prophets face a very singular test, a test that separates the false prophets from the true prophets. You may say to yourself, Moses declares, how can we recognize a word that the Lord has not spoken? His answer to his own question follows. If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, but the thing does not take place or prove true, it is a word that the Lord has not spoken. Okay, that's a reasonable approach, right? Someone says they speak for God. Someone claims to tell the truth. Well, then wait and see what happens. Wait. Because a real prophet the one who speaks for God will stand the test of time. A real prophet, a truth-telling prophet, will speak something in the name of the Lord or in the spirit of the Lord, and either it will take place or not. It will either be proved or not. That's a reasonable approach. But I wonder whether it only works for reasonable people. So often these days, people have already decided what is true, and then they work their way back from there. So the outcome doesn't matter as much as the conviction or the certainty held in someone's mind. And if so, then facts are changed to fit the conclusion rather than following the facts to their conclusion. I'll give you an example of how this works. 15, almost 16, almost 16 years ago now, my parents were in a car accident. 
My mother died at the scene of the accident, and my father survived, but he had a traumatic brain injury. The next year of his life was spent recovering from that brain injury and other injuries to his body before he too died 10 days after the first anniversary of that accident. A brain injury, we discovered in the year that followed the accident, can change a person dramatically. In his case, there was a change in his ability to think, his ability to learn new things, to make sense of his environment, to handle his own affairs. He thought he was capable of doing things that he was no longer capable of doing. He would turn the stove on and forget about it. He struggled to manage his medications. He couldn't pass a test to restore his driving privileges after he recovered from a seizure. But beyond all of that, his way of thinking became unmoored from the facts. Without the ability to think rationally, his truth became an expression of his feelings. In other words, whenever he had a particular outcome in mind, he would simply change the facts to fit the outcome. One specific example I can offer is that driving test I mentioned a moment ago. Once he was done with his anti-seizure medication, he wanted to drive again. So we arranged for a driving test because we were still worried not only about his seizure history at that point, but because of his brain injury as well. And on the day that he took the test, the first thing he did after he got into the driver's seat as he reached is he reached for what he thought was the parking brake release. The instructor told him, don't do that, don't touch that. But he trusted his own judgment over hers, his own agency over her authority. And so he went ahead and pulled the lever, but it wasn't the parking brake release, it was the hood release. And so before he could even pull out of the parking space, he had released the hood on the car. She was the instructor, the authority figure, the expert, and she told him, I told you not to pull that. And instead of apologizing for not listening to her, he got angry. I was sure it was the parking brake release, he said. I told you not to pull it, she retorted. Turned into an argument. Clearly he was wrong, but he was certain he should have been right. He made other mistakes as well during that test, but when she failed him, he was absolutely sure that she was just trying to punish him, that it was personal. The next time, he grumbled to me as we left the test site, you will sit in the back seat, my son, while I take the test so you can see how she's out to get me. In that moment, he was expressing both his disdain for her authority and his trust in me. But I remember thinking to myself, if I would actually do that, if I would sit in the seat in the back seat during the test, if they'd even allow it, which I don't think they would, but if I would actually do that, and then after observing what happened, I would agree with the instructor that he shouldn't be driving, my father would have moved me from the trustworthy to the untrustworthy category in a blink of an eye. Now, he had a brain injury. I understood. I 
had an enormous amount of sympathy for him, even as he was driving me around the bend sometimes. He wasn't typically paranoid. He wasn't typically fact-free. But his brain was bruised. Things weren't working as they should. Truth was free-floating. Trust was tenuous. He was in survival mode, quite honestly. If you don't know who you can trust, the world is a dangerous and difficult place, right? I tell you that story, and it occurs to me that, metaphorically speaking, it is almost as if our culture has something like a traumatic brain injury. We are more paranoid now, more fact-free, trust is more tenuous. We are in survival mode somehow. We don't know who to trust, and the world feels increasingly like a more dangerous and dangerous place. In the New Testament scripture for today, Jesus is starting his ministry. His ministry begins with teaching in the synagogue, and right away it is clear to all who hear him that he teaches with authority. People are astounded, the scripture says. So his teaching has the strong ring of truth, and people recognize it. And then the story goes on to say that a man with an unclean spirit comes in, and the unclean spirit recognizes Jesus. Jesus commands the spirit to be silent and then to come out of the man, and it does. And when that happens, people are even more amazed. His words not only have the ring of truth to them, but when confronting spiritual forces, his commands have the force of truth. In that moment, he passes Moses' prophet test. His words lead to action. What he says actually happens. Walter Cronkite used to say, and that's the way it is at the end of his newscast. And that's the way it is. It was a way of saying, what I have just told you is the truth. Jesus has his own catchphrase, so to speak. He would often say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And then he would offer a superseding teaching about forgiveness or reconciliation, anger or adultery, or even about truth-telling itself. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. If you're a scripture-remembering person, a gospel person especially, you'll know where to go to find those words. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Any, any ideas? Any recollections? Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you shall be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely, but I say to you, do not swear at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Tell the truth. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Sermon on the Mount is one of those times when Jesus speaks with authority and then, of course, he backs up his teaching with the life that he lives. Words are connected to action. For example, when the time comes to face his enemies, he turns the other cheek. Back to our questions once again. 
What prophets can be trusted? Who are the truth tellers? Who rightly speaks with authority? Who can we believe? We brethren will stake our claim that Jesus is the trustworthy one, the authoritative teacher, the one to be believed. And if we are continuing in the way of Jesus, then we are called to be trustworthy and true in his spirit, in his example, in his way. He commands us with authority. Serve others. Wash feet. Love your enemy. Sit at the table with those the culture calls outcasts. Accept that you may be persecuted by those who oppose you. Put down the sword. Feed the hungry. Visit those who are imprisoned. Clothe the naked. Do not store up treasures on earth. Remove the log from your own eye. Do not judge. Do not worry. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Care for the widow and the orphan. Heal the sick. Do the right thing even when it puts you on the wrong side of the powers that be. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you extend charity to others. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Words of truth, teachings to be trusted, spoken by Jesus on God's authority. One final time. What prophets can be trusted? Who are the truth tellers? Who rightly speaks with authority? Who can we believe? We can answer, of course, that it is Jesus. But then, because we are the body of Christ, it also ought to be us. We ought to be the truth tellers, the ones who echo the authority of Jesus. It ought to be us. We ought to be the ones who can be trusted, who can be believed. Rooted in Jesus' teachings, walking in the steps of his example, seeking the mind of Christ, following him in word and deed, may it be so. Amen.